You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number five, six, two. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Station for another podcast and video interview. Well, cast your mind back a couple of years to July 2020. Lockdown, yes, lockdown time. When I spoke with Bethany Fidget Hughes and Lauren Neon Reed, two ladies from her odyssey about their 18,221 mile journey from the southernmost tip of the Americas to the northern. At the time in July, thanks to COVID, lockdown was stopping everybody and they were trapped just south of the Canadian border, waiting for permissions to enter. Now they completed their journey in August of last year and this is the first time we've had time to sit down and talk in more detail about their adventure. Now, they have been completely self-powered for the duration and the, the adventure has taken seven years, this particular expedition. So in that time, they've walked, they've cycled, they've paddled to get from, as I say, A to the northernmost B. Obviously, a journey like this has great impact on you, not just the physical part of doing it, but also the mental, the mental and the emotional part. And there is an awful lot of sacrifice involved in doing so, particularly for something that takes, as I say, seven years. So it is to my delight that I managed to sit down with them just a few hours ago and hear the complete story. Hi, ladies. How nice to see you and hear you again. Hi, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, hello, fantastic. Hello. <laughs> well, I've just listened back to uh, to the last conversation we had, which was well almost three years ago now, July 2020. And uh, I just want to say how much I enjoyed talking to you. It's fascinating to to get as far as we did and then and talk through the subjects we did. So let us now just have a quick recap of the situation, because obviously you have completed your expedition, your trek, but just give us a heads up for the people who might be watching and listening at the moment, exactly what you're doing at this very moment today. How are you filling your time? I am at Stanford University, been going onto the campus to do some work on writing. Fantastic. And yourself, Lauren? Uh, I have been walking a lot of dogs and spending time with friends and um, working a lot in the ceramic studio here. So so you guys are obviously not together. Last time you were obviously sharing an apartment or something when we had the conversation. So you're in two completely different places? Correct. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, let us uh, just remind ourselves where you were last time we spoke, which was uh, somewhere around the Canadian border, I think, where I've lost my place on the map. A already. little bit north. A bit of north. There you are, right oh, there, West right Glacier. Waterton there Park. There you go. Excellent. Okay, now the for people that are sort of aware of the journey, or perhaps listeners and people watching who aren't aware of the journey i do hope they go back and listen to the podcast first of all but would you like to just explain how you got from there up to there in fact no let before we do that let's run a little video just to explain to people exactly what the trip sort of entailed So fill us in then, Bethany. How did you get from the bottom to the top, or where we last spoke anyway to the top? Well, where we last spoke was actually a pretty vulnerable junction in the in the Her Odyssey expedition. We were waiting. It was during COVID or um, towards, yeah, 
Yeah, during COVID. And we were waiting at the Canadian border. And every month, the government would extend um, the stay by another 30 days. And so we spent several months up there um, hoping for the border to open, um, being fully prepared for it, being vaccinated for it. Um, and yeah, so that was that was a really touch and go time for us, both in terms of the expedition itself and consequently in terms of um, the mental health as individuals and the team work was um, all very tried at that point. So that was actually a rich moment of in process for you to talk to us. And now I'm delighted to come back having completed Canada. What you're looking at right now on the map is us hiking the Great Divide Trail, just sort of like the red-headed stepchild of the Continental Divide Trail. It is absolutely wild up there. And then from near the northern extension of that from Jasper, we put a canoe in the water. Um, we were unable, we hoped to put in from Jasper um, right down there on that red line where it reaches up towards the red, towards the blue line, but the water was just too low. It was a particularly odd spring. It's, it's been interesting to be on an odyssey that, it, that traversed seven years of the climate changing and how rapidly that affected how we could um, access different areas. So by the time we got up there, the water was too low. So we had to go down to Hinton where we were able to put the boat in. And from there, we started canoeing the Arctic drainage. Um, there's several areas throughout Canada that Canadians do a great job of being aware of their natural resources as a place to spend time, thus projects like the Great Divide Trail. And the canoeing is the traditional way to have um, gotten to know that northern area. So we went up the Athabasca River and then up there where you can see um, the line ending, we had to do a, a 300 kilometer portage um, because the river goes through a canyon bottom with um, portages and a series of, I think it's eight back-to-back -back class three rapids. So we uh, chose safe, yeah, through right through there. Uh, so I've got my hands on a pack raft and I'm hoping to be able to go back and clean that up because there's like a, there's a petrified forest in the bottom of that canyon. There's just so much of, so much history of the region down in there. So then we put back in at the mining town of Fort McMurray onto, again, onto the Athabasca River. And then that spat us out into one of the large lakes, which the Lake Athabasca and Fort Chippewan, which was where uh, in written history was Mackenzie's journey began. And for him, the Mackenzie River was named. So now you're seeing the Slave River um, and some of the lovely oxbows there. And then we came out into the Great Slave Lake, which was a very formidable body. Um, we spent a bit of time in Fort Resolution and then made a bid to get as far across the lake as we could. We were paddling around. We put in about 9 p.m. and paddled until about 4 or 5 a.m. since that's when the water, the wind is the calmest. Most of the winds come down out of the north across that large body of water. And where you see that ending was because the winds started to pick up. And on that day, a local man happened to come stand by the water, as they usually do, and was telling us about how the last person, the last white person who had come through trying to paddle had drowned and um, how that had an impact on the local community. And so we tried to wait out the weather. We spent four days sitting there and it just wasn't abating and it wasn't safe for us to proceed. So we caught a ride in the Hay River. And then from there, we came into the mouth of what you're looking at now, which is what most of us know is the Mackenzie River. Um, in the Dene language, they call it the Dejo, the big river or which is what most people who live along it, they just call it the big river. And that was our final 1200 kilometers, I believe that ushered us out to the Arctic Ocean, which had been our goal. We saw one other set of paddlers that whole time. <laughs> Good God. God. 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I have to say, so full of respect and absolutely gobsmacked that, I mean, just the paddle alone would be a, a trip and a half for most people. But when you actually combine it all together and actually conclude that the, the entire journey was 18,000 miles, it's absolutely phenomenal. And I have to, my hat off to both of you, I congratulate you. It's just wonderful to, to pick up the story and come back and see little bits of episodes and adventures. You had many adventures amongst the big adventures, but uh, absolutely awesome. L Lauren, were you as, as excited about the, the boat trip as you were the, the hiking, the general hiking? Do you have a particular favorite as it were? Um, a favorite, I don't know. Mode I like them for different reasons. <laughs> um, Obviously, with backpacking, you can get into more remote areas that wouldn't allow bikes or may not be um, useful in a canoe. Uh, the canoeing was awesome. Like, Fidget tells the story pretty regularly of having found the Mackenzie and found that route out and then, like, started researching it more and more, and it just made more sense to go that way, just the way that Canada is laid out and the northern areas are laid out it's like the rivers are their highways um and then with bikepacking i really got into into that and being a being a logically mind minded person um i really enjoy like the um the problem solving of bikepacking and then also being able to cover more ground and a little less uh wear and tear on my knees <laughs> I, I, honestly, the, it's 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 so big. I've it's it's been a while since I've been completely stumped for questions in many respects because there's so many things I'd love to ask you guys, and it's trying to logically go through them to to make it a, a good story for people to listen to at the same time. What I mean, something like eight thousand miles. And it's taken you seven years. You've had the on and offs due to COVID and due to necessity and due to um, weather and different seasons and so on. It's something like this is going to leave a big hole in your life when you get to the end. How do you feel about that hole now? Are you managing to, to fill it emotionally and sort of physically, or are you just sort of distracting yourself from the, the, the space that was there? Um, if you'd like to answer that first it's been helpful that the first text i got when i began concocting this vision was to do my research and see who i could find who had done this previous to us and the first person i found was george megan and he opens his book the longest walk um and i'm just going to paraphrase here because i can't remember it exactly essentially saying that the worst thing in life must be to have never lived your dreams, but the second worst thing is to have a dream and to have already lived it. And so having that kind of context and having worked both while on the Odyssey physically, I was doing another level of work in terms of community building, and I've been very fortunate to be able to reach out to and to connect with uh, most of the folks living today who have done uh, similar trans-American treks. So by contextualizing, by conferring and contextualizing with some of them who are many years out from their journeys, I was able to pick up, um, you know, some of the greatest challenges. And in the months afterwards, it is difficult, you know, your body aches. I was having night terrors. Both Lauren and I talked about uh, leaky eyes. We we wouldn't know why, but our faces would just start leaking while you're sitting there looking at a tree. Um, but through a concerted effort of maintaining a daily practice of journaling, as well as writing, continuing to write for the blogs and showing up for my body in terms of going to yoga classes and spending time outside, I've managed to get things like, you know, my shoulder doesn't click three times every time when I roll it now. So I consider that recovery progress. And what about you, Neon? How do you how do you feel now? Um, definitely better physically. Um, still figuring out some some gut issues, if I may overshare. 
Um, and also, uh, I think it's more uh, a mental hurdle. Like right now, it still feels because we did take breaks along um, the Her Odyssey journey. It still feels like one of those breaks. So I've just been like um, still processing it. And like, as Bethany mentioned, the, the leaky eyes. Uh, but then getting, I think spring is when I'll be like, oh, I've, I'm not doing something. I've probably like figured out. And uh, I've also tried to be intentional about like getting out um, outside. And um, I think for the first week or so that I was back in Utah, where I live, um, I didn't go outside because I was just like kind of in this like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I need to like take time and rest. And then once I did get outside, I was like, oh, this is also rest because I'm not like, I don't know. I'm, I've never been very good at just wandering. Um, so to have like an end goal and then to have reached that is still kind of uh, mind blowing to me as well. <laughs> and I mean, usually with long trips, uh, certainly from my experience is that your body can suppress a lot of problems and illnesses and then give it to you in spades when you, you stop and you know finish your journey, whatever it may be. So have you both got, you mentioned one ailment there, have you got various ailments that you've sort of discovered um, from, the, from the journey? Particularly, I mean, I'm thinking that long paddle, that must have been potentially quite painful or hammering on your body being in that position paddling for that length of time for that for that distance um fidget that's a really keen insight that you had in terms of the body paying out in spades again due to the seasonal nature of her odyssey almost every single time that we would take a break the first week or two was spent being some form of ill for us in terms of the paddling component in particular, it was so remote up there and many of those um, provinces had closed their borders completely throughout COVID, even within their own country, which was also being very cautious about opening back up. And so for about the three or four months of paddling, we, we saw very few people and those who we did see were almost always outside. And then I'm pretty sure that it was after we had finished and on the flights back down, uh, we were all of a sudden, you know, inundated. We saw more people in a day than we had seen in the previous four months. And as soon as we touched down back in Southern Canada, um, we both got COVID. <laughs> and then following that, reintegrating to the United States, I came back and then promptly this past um, spent the month of November and December actually in a month-long illness that uh, was just very physically draining and was just, I think, you know, whatever format it took, it was just my body saying, I'm not up to this yet and you have the room to take care of me, so you better do it. <laughs> and did you have the similar sort of problems then, Lauren? Um, some of mine were like long-term physical. Um, my back still especially my lower back is still very uh, irritated <laughs> most of the time, especially if I sit for a while and then um, stand up. So um, something I need to be more intentional about is like stretching and, and strengthening. And that's not what I've been doing this winter. So, um, yeah. The landscape that you went through was not very populated. So were you picking up supplies randomly or had you posted stuff ahead of you? How, how planned, considering comparing it to the Southern um, Americas, how planned were you in the North Americas? Was it at, I'm trying to just grasp really from the conversation that we had last time, just what a, um, a, a travel experience it was in the Southern Americas and, and the cultural experience. Whereas a, in going through Canada, um, I would guess it was a completely different environment Obviously, um, from a from a rural point of view is one thing, but also the commercial point of view, the way that traveling in 
North America is a much more commercial touristy thing to do. Does it, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I think the touristy commercial component is certainly there. I think our experience was also that it goes a degree deeper that that long distance travel just is and long has been the part of the Canadian lifestyle and mental framework. So, for example, what we were doing would be called uh, coming in in the canoe is called voyageuring. Um, and that language dates back to, you know, the French trappers. And so these long distance travels are actually um, very familiar to people up there. And then, of course, the the indigenous peoples have been building their own boats. You know, the Dene were the canoe people and the Inuit were the were the kayak makers and the kayak travelers. So it's actually really a great decision to have adapted my vision originally of walking across Canada. And then I was looking at things like the Connell Trail. And um, that was the story that Lauren was referencing earlier was that it was actually my Google Maps, which is what I used originally to be creating route before any of these amazing apps were available. It glitched and it zoomed me into the Mackenzie River. And that was when I was like, why are we walking when there's this giant water highway? And we had just come through the Darien Gap where it was similar messaging of from the locals. Why, what do you, being on foot is not the way that we travel. Boats are how we travel. And so adapting our vision to the way that the locals traveled and to that melding actually worked out really well because we were always exceptionally well received. People knew what we needed and were eager to, you know, come meet us down by the riverside and tell us their stories and point us at the northern store. And so we were able to do some more intentional planning, actually, thanks to our friends, Lisa and Keith. And they sent out resupplies for us, which at first had seemed financially prudent because of the the cost of things up north. Everything up there has to come by barge. So not only are there higher prices, but then there's the, the price of getting the food in there, as well as the concern of very small hamlets and communities and not wanting to take all of their food when you only get a boat through, you know, every once a season. Otherwise, food has to be flown in. So we had, you know, done our diligence and planned and sent our resupplies. But around that time, there was the fuel surges in Canada. So mailing our resupply cost more than a person (laughs) flying into the area. So it worked for us. And as Nan mentioned, some of the dietary or some of the gut issues that we've been facing, we're trying to address that with our diet. So for us as long distance endurance athletes at the end of a seven-year expedition, shipping our food uh, made sense for meeting our dietary needs. But financially, it ended up being um, quite a commitment for our supporters. Yeah, well, I think we mentioned it before. And I think one thing that I found, and I hope the listeners found interesting, was in any trip, there's obviously a, a certain amount of administration that goes into planning and preparing for anything, whether it's sort of a week or two weeks. But then when you start getting into months and then into years, the logic and your approach obviously needs to adapt and overcome um, supply issues or practical issues as you go along. The other thing that, that had been mentioned last time, which uh, I thought was quite interesting, is that you said that when you were greeted by the local people, local uh, communities, as two women, you were greeted with far less suspicion and welcomed generally uh, in the South Americas fairly easily than than it would have happened to men. But how was that different in the North Americas? Was there a noticeable difference on on how you were greeted? Um, Neon, perhaps you could answer that. Um... Not that I noticed. Fidget is, or Bethany, sorry, whichever name we're using. Uh, (laughs) Bethany is generally more adept at picking up on differences in uh, interactions with people. Um, I would say that it wasn't necessarily whether we were male or female um, coming in. I would say more our mode of transportation up north was what 
people were excited about and excited to talk about and excited to be like, hey, my grandfather has a canoe and we go out hunting every year and we're able to go up this creek that motorboats can't get up. And um, so a lot of places up there, I would say, are very boat oriented, um, being such a big river and a big, as, as Bethany put it, big highway of, of water to travel back and forth. Um, so I would say people were excited to see us. Um, and my perception is that's partially because they had been closed down for a number of years due to COVID and due to their own choice of protecting their people. Um, so there were a couple of places that we pulled up in our canoe and people would come down and be like, you're the first tourists we've seen in like three years, two years. Um, and then um, other times we'd pull up and people would come down and be really excited to like, even on the water, like pull up next to us and be like, hello, the, let me tell you about my town that you're coming up to and where you can pull in. And um, that sort of thing was really neat to, to experience and see and just the friendliness that they showed us as like non-motorized travelers. Before we've talked about, and it's a natural thing to talk about, the, the safety element, and there's two, two questions really sort of come to mind. What was the difference, Fidget, uh, if perhaps you could tell us, what was the difference in the general feeling of safety that you felt as individuals, not necessarily as females, but as individuals and possibly the female part, because we've talked about the South Americas and your, and the sixth sense or the seventh sense rather, that, that you built between you that was very sensitive and you could pick up on things. Did you find your guard dropping when you went into the North Americas? Did you find it was far less of a problem or conversely, was it more of a problem? The sensitivity, was... I mean, more than... The sensitivity has always remained, I think, because of my upbringing as a third culture child. It's just always I've realized now through through the work I've done in therapy while on this odyssey that that awareness has been a survival tactic for me since I moved abroad when I was three and a half years old. So I don't know that that's going to be anything that comes or goes. There's, there are times that I'm able to let it rest. And so I think one of the the interesting things, yeah, across South America, they would always say, estas solas, and, I, and I, are you alone? And I would say, no, look, there's this person next to me. And they're like, yeah, the two of you, are you alone? And it took someone explaining, well, we're at, like, you have no man with you, therefore you're traveling alone. And then as Lauren pointed out, in the North, it was far less to do with our gender and far more about the format of our travel and coming in in a canoe and folks coming down to, to see that. I think I was also able to let my guard down more because we could go three, four days without seeing another person, you know, on one of those stretches, I think it was five days and it was a really big deal on day four, we saw the barge going by and Lauren waved at it and the barge tooted its horn at us. And, you know, that, that really powered us into the next town, um, <laughs> that human interaction, but the reception was always warm. Um, there certainly were, you know, we had standards of safety throughout her odyssey that we had put in place early on and that we adapted to the areas but things like never rolling into cities or outskirts after dark um we are going to sleep places uh trying to get places with doors that could lock or at least with someone at the front um avoiding consuming alcohol in public or excessive consumption and I believe those practices, as well as the trained gut checks and instinct check in different environments of deciding, will we sleep here or should we move on? What is our safest alternative? As well as having uh, precautionary measures with us up north with bear spray, for example, uh, worked out. And what about the other safety question, which is managing the expectations of your loved ones and your parents and so on? Because they would no doubt always be on edge, especially when you just casually mentioned a bear, a bear encounter or, or something similar. What was, uh, what was your experience of that, Neon? Um, I would say that, <laughs> um, 
my I'd say my entire family is kind of understated nervous. So they would like if they hadn't heard from me in a bit, they would check in. Um, but one of the multiple things that we did was uh, carry an inReach tracker. And we would have that so that uh, our family and our friends that we gave the link to could see where we were uh, along the journey and uh, check in. And we would get messages from, from Bethany's uncles every once in a while. And her, I know another uncle of hers uh, sent a message while we were on the Great Divide Trail because he was excited that we were like near a place that he had been to um, for a business trip. And then. Um, I would email my family as well. Usually when I got into town, when I had cell service, um, I would message them just to let them know where I was and um, what we were going to be doing next and how long we were going in town. Um, there were definitely times where I would uh, video chat with my family as well when we had the service and I had the energy to be able to, to do that. But I think in general, the inReach was definitely a huge load off of our family members' minds because they could check anytime they were worried, like they could see where we were or where we had been within the last like two hours. <laughs> and yourself, Fidget? Yeah, I think that the inReach was massive in terms of my family is spread out across the globe. So in terms of keeping everybody informed and removing the, the, the load on me of not only completing the trip, but having to keep people updated. Instead, they could look and see and say, oh, they're still moving. And the inReach came in handy when there were a couple touchy border crossings in Central America that was sort of a juxtaposition for us if we stopped um, midway through Central America um, and departed because of COVID to wait it out. We were able to start completing Canada before we could go back and complete Central America. So having that sense of safety of the challenges of Central America with the um, relative placidity of Canada and having those experiences back to back really created a very clear paradigm of the breadth of, of safety interactions that one has. <laughs> As you know, I'm, I'm quite fascinated talking to you and learning quite how you feel you've changed and things have developed for you personally on a mental level and a, and a self-confidence level as, or self-reflection level. The one thing that, that struck me is when you did the CDT, you're obviously interacting with through hikers and day hikers and, and well, uh, you know, people perhaps doing the Triple Crown. But here you are, you must have been at that stage, I don't know, something like 15,000 miles into your journey. So I just, I just wondered how some of those campfire conversations went and, and how people took to you or did you tone down what you'd done and not really mention anything because it was a little bit too too daunting for them to grasp how were certain evenings there context of change between hiking in 2013 and 2019 was actually quite vast and through the u.s i think the first thing that i noticed is um there's an economy and and the towns were at that point set up to support and facilitate a through hike. And so as a hiker, I was able to just move through and have all of my needs conveniently met in a single day. Whereas in South America, it would take two or three days to resupply because you have to meet the right people and, and wait for the animal to be butchered and have mate with abuela before she'll introduce you to tío. And then here the economy of it was towards the efficiency of the hike. And I think in the first place, the people who connect with her odyssey are people who have a sense of curiosity. And one of the things that I ran into in the development of the through hiking community in the United States is that um, it's, it's my perspective that so much is provided to people that it allows them to immerse themselves in their own experience and have little to no engagement or curiosity with others. So by and large, I did not talk about her odyssey so it was very 
uh, affirming and lovely to me actually a couple of times around these campfires to have someone lean in and say, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. <laughs> um, and whenever they would give us that cue and I would, you know, as a person who had been following, then there would be some invitation and space to start talking about it. But it really is such an overwhelming undertaking and enabled by a lot of privilege that it's not really something that um, I would just, you know, throw out there. <laughs> and privilege is a, is a, another word that I've, I've got down in my notes here. Did you find or would it be better to put it this way? Do you think that the Instagram through hiker social outdoors person has got a very privileged view on life and they don't really understand how lucky they are? I think it takes work to acknowledge all of the advantages that you have. I'm also pretty firmly of the opinion that if you are able to travel, then you have a great deal of privilege in your life, whether it's evaluated or not. And that's up to the individual of how they choose to look at that. We chose to take a deep dive into that in the nature of our journey. And that um, pro has proven to be very fertile grounds for self-growth um, and for being uncomfortable, which is also a part of growth and a big part of her odyssey. Um, I do think that a lot of it was assumed just from also having run trail magic and having, you know, shuttled people 150 miles and um, then they just, you know, get out of your car and leave and leave. Uh, <laughs> and it's just that 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 kindness is assumed because we've spread the message of trail magic. And so now it's through hiking. There's almost like a checklist of what is a successful through hike. It's have a trail name, experience trail magic, stay at a trail angel's house. And so now that it's become more of a rote script rather than gift, the assumption I think changes the nature. I hope this is not a touchy subject, but every relationship has its ups and downs. And obviously seven years together, give or take the few breaks that you've had, I'm sure you've had your moments where you want to kill each other, but at the same time, you're aware you are a, a unit and you have to look after each other. So what tips or advice would you have for people that presumably have had similar experiences in the sense they are a unit, they cannot leave each other. It's a bit like marriage really, isn't it? You can't leave each other. You're in the middle of nowhere. You know you'd be entirely responsible for whatever happened to the other person if you did. But at the same time, you need to blow off steam and obviously release some gas somewhere so you can come back and be a little bit more nice to each other. So uh, let's start with you first, Vijay. What would your tips would be for, for people in that situation? I think having a trusted and limited group of friends to sort of off gas to or to, to run things by the first time when it's just needing to, to have to experience the emotions. And the second thing that we did that was really helpful was having a therapist. One of, one of my friends uh, who was married a long time, actually, when I had come home and had spent about a week or two there just off gassing after a pretty long and difficult season, she's like, you and Lauren are like an old married couple. Like you've jumped right to having been married 40 years because you just know everything about this person. Um, so I think, yeah, having, having a close and trusted supportive group of friends, choosing to go to therefore couples therapy and um, every probably between each season or at least quarterly of the year, we would sit down the two of us and have about a two hour long session and then we would do daily check-ins as well with one another that we, we did our best to maintain it as, as sort of a safe space to each be able to speak our truth and for the other one to hear it. And so I think maintaining that space that we could both in our own styles um, be able to communicate was very helpful to our long-term well-being. And none of that is to say that any of those things can prevent there from being challenges but i will say before we started one of my closest friends who's he's argentine he's like i'd give you a year before you punch each other in the face 
<laughs> and so I just got to sit down over pizza with him uh, seven years later and gloat just a little bit that nobody punched anyone. One time Neon threw an elbow when we were both racing for the lone twin bed to sleep in. But, um, you know, that's that's the furthest that the violence went. And what, have you, what about yourself, Neil? Um, I would say to respect and appreciate the other person for who they are. Um, I think one of the, the big things that both Bethany and I did was um, the work. Like we both have put in a lot of work, not just physically, of course, to migrate ourselves across the Americas, but also like mentally and separately we would sit down with ourselves and recognize like what kind of work we need to do to to help this this relationship um and as bethany mentioned like sitting down together and doing it as well um i think something that a lot of people don't think of is just like yeah it takes work um, and I think it's really helpful to, to see that and validate it and, and give it the effort that it deserves for the people that you like truly care about and want to be a better person for, and then it ends up making you a better person for yourself, uh, as well. Um, another thing that really helps me is, um, recognize and taking time when I need it. I'm not always the best at that. Um, so sometimes I recognize it like after <laughs> the, the fact um, or after I've already gotten like upset about something that I don't need to get upset about. Um, another thing is before we would have a big discussion or like a, a meeting or a therapy appointment, we would make sure that all of our basic needs are met like we've eaten, we've drank enough water, we have rest, we do it at certain times of day. Like I'm more of a morning person where Bethany's more of an evening person. So there's this like time window in the middle of the day where we can both have enough energy to be able to like work together on something that might be more difficult or take more brain power. Well, seven years is, is, is a major commitment and uh, I can understand a lot of people thinking talking about therapy when you're uh, on a hike or whatever seems a little bit over the top but seven years is longer than a lot of people's marriages so congratulations on on still being friends <laughs> it's it's an important part now talking about sacrifice I, I don't know if people realize this and as I say I do hope they've listened to the part one and part two of the of the podcast because it really does sort of emphasize the fact but you were uh, self-funded you were funding as best you could through patreon you had a uh, numerous um, sort of uh, support from various people and also uh, little bits of support from from sponsors when you were very selective about your sponsors because you wanted people that believed in the journey and I think it would be quite interesting for people to to actually have a look at your website uh, which is her hyphen odyssey dot org but there is a page on there support us and so on and there you've got the costs of what the actual trip cost you since March 2018 and I'm thinking it's quite um, an interesting uh, deep dive into some facts and figures for people who might look at what you've done or hear about what you've done and assume that many might do that it was obviously financially viable. But you were really working right down to the financial knuckle, uh, as I can see it uh, here. How did the... I mean... <laughs> Again, looking at the bigger picture, stepping back seven years, you're seven years older. I'm sure all your friends have uh, grown their individual families or whatever it may be uh, in that period of time. The, the, the notes that I put down was, was something about pigeonholes, really. Everybody has a little pigeonhole. They like to pigeonhole people. You know, you might be an office worker or a, an outdoors enthusiast or, or a, a factory worker, whatever it may be, and you have your apartment you know two up two down whatever it may be you might have the family and this that and the other 
How do you guys see yourselves now? How have you changed the vision of yourself? What pigeonhole would you place yourself in? Uh, if I could perhaps start with, with Fidget on that one. If I were to pigeonhole myself, I think that I would fall into the category of traveler. Uh, in terms of the, the financing of her odyssey, I put that on our website because we were getting a lot of questions about it. And I just wanted to, to lay it out and be honest, and particularly with our investors, which is what we call our Patreon supporters. Um, it was about, about that clarity of it. And approaching this expedition in that route, rather than getting a major funder or focusing on yeah, a single source of funding or large-scale funding, was that humility was a very big component of the growth that I was seeking through her odyssey. And you learn sometimes that line between humility and humiliation. Um, they're both, they come from the same root. And so you have to, to work with that. So it was very, um, as you said, down to the knuckle or hand to mouth a lot of the way. And that gave us some perspective and appreciation for the lives of many of the people who we went past. Uh, it also made us very cautious about about uh, financial investments and we've come out of it. I think one of the things I like to say is that we're people rich and cash poor. Um, and our Patreon is actually still running right now to support me in being able to focus on writing instead of jumping right back into this American economy, which has shifted significantly while I've been out of the loop um, in terms of the expectation of <laughs> work and how much you will make for it. And what about yourself, Neon? How, how has your perspective changed from beginning to end on, on yourself? Where do you see yourself now? Um, I feel like I've discovered quite a bit about myself in the realm of just like who I thought I was and who I like how kind of how I come off to other people. Um, a big portion of that is like um i'm i'm pretty quiet and reserved and um i've learned and grown in the way of like putting my uh loudness where it needs to be i would say and then um you were talking about pigeonholing and i think like the closest I can come to pigeonholing myself mostly because I don't really like to. And um, it's interesting to find how people have pigeonholed me um, depending on what era they've met me in, in my life. And um, so it's been, I would say I'm, I'm pigeonhole myself as like a person who's really curious and so like wants to explore whatever curiosity has caught my attention at the time, <laughs> um, whether it be biking or swimming or um, canoeing or wanting to learn more about whitewater or um, people, um, depending on the area. Uh, and I would say that I feel like I've kind of learned, grown and learned in the realm of um, interacting with others more more than necessarily interacting with myself. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been quite the journey across the Americas because every country is different. Well, it's been an awesome journey, absolutely awesome journey, and I do admire you for for uh, being true to yourselves, both of you, to to do this and and sacrificing. I hate to say normal life, but it is really, isn't it? Sacrificing the life of normal other people. Normal people. No, you're not normal. Hang on a second. Let's get this right. <laughs> the average person. Let's get. Let's use that one. Sacrificing what an average life would have been like. You've done something completely different. And, uh, I, you know, anything that we can do to, to, to help, certainly. And certainly I'd suggest people take a visit to your website, her-odyssey.org. And you'll have all the full story there and much more background than I've done, probably given it credit to in this particular interview. Um, and you can support them. Uh, there's their library and shop here. Uh, that, so there's all the details of the Patreons and so on uh, account, which I'm sure will be gratefully received. 
As part and parcel of all this, they do have a fairly extensive YouTube channel as well, strangely called exactly the same thing, Her Odyssey, with lots of background information and uh, extra videos to give you an idea of what these, these ladies have both gone through over the last seven years. And I would certainly recommend, if you can, just uh, buy a few stickers and uh, keep them supported in humble ways, which I'm sure be appreciated, because I'm sure everybody's going to be looking forward to the, the book, the film, the epic, and everything that will be coming from this. Uh, there's certainly so much you've done and covered and uh, touched on, and also you've done it from a very... Um, considerate way as well as far as I can see it's not been superficial you've been very considerate of the landscapes and the communities and the people you've gone through uh, which obviously was a key part of your mission now you both know what's coming because we did it last time and you do, you 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 preempted me which was most annoying so it's coming again but of all the things I could have asked you about your 18,221 mile journey what should I have asked you let's start with you Fujit I'd say one of the differences that we've experienced in the field of athletics, or so I guess the question that could have would have been interesting for you to pose is like, um, how much of yourself to put into your sport? And there's this messaging, at least throughout the U.S., of you know you've got to give it 110 percent. You need to believe in yourself before you set out the door. A lot of that that kind of language. And I'm more of a half-hearted warrior, and at no point in sustaining a seven year expedition could, I mean, there were times that it was down to the wire and it was survival and you are putting your all into that. But this concept of give it 110% or, you know, be certain of your outcomes before you start is not sustainable for ultra endurance athleticism. We adapted the route and the nature of her odyssey along the way at no point did I feel certain that we were going to make it to the Arctic, all the way down to up to Sikachik, um, standing with, with a local guy there and saying, well, if we make it to the Arctic, and I had gotten so accustomed to maintaining that language, um, and he just looks at me and he goes, oh, you're going to make it. And so it wasn't until that last 100 miles that I had any sense of certainty that we would actually make it. Yes. Uh, there's a question that I'm kind of grateful you didn't ask uh, <laughs> because we get asked what next quite frequently. Um, and so it's like, oh, we were, get, we were getting asked what's next since basically the beginning of our journey. And um, we'd be like, oh, well, we need to finish South America first. And then when we get asked in, in Central America, we'd be like, hold on, we're not even like to North America yet. Like we need to finish that. Um, and so the, the what's next question is, is really tough for a long-term adventure to be asked, especially right after they just finished a seven year endeavor that took their heart and soul and energy and probably gut biome. Uh, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> It's it's definitely one of those situations where it's more I'm grateful that you didn't ask it, but it's one that gets asked quite frequently. Oh, you're you're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> Back to you then, Fajit. Uh, no, I got so distracted with the way that Lauren went with that that I really agree with that statement. <laughs> that <laughs> okay. The grace for a lot of people say like, oh, celebrate, and then at the same time are like, what is next? And this human compulsion to constantly live in the future. And, and it is, it's just, a, it seems like it's a natural human tendency. And that was one of the biggest things that I lived and experienced and learned from her odyssey was really the only place that you can be is the present. I'm not in a vehicle where you can accelerate and tell yourself you're gonna get there earlier. You're on foot, you know about when you're gonna get there and you're not gonna get there any faster by worrying. And so that that being present and being willing to make the sacrifices, because there's, there's the romantic side of the idea of the, we have this saying in through hiking of the trail provides, and it's this romantic notion, and it certainly does arise. You know, as you saw from our budget, like we floated by. I don't know how that happened, and we made it, managed to get through this without being in debt. Um, 
And then the other side of it is that half the time that magic is not there. And those are the moments when you get to grit up and you, you keep making do and you figure out ways around it. And you, I feel like one has to meet the other and that balance in the end plays itself out beautifully if you can just trust it because it's really scary to trust <laughs> well it's interesting it's interesting you you say that because looking at your information in your data and your videos and and listening to a few conversations you've had with people i've had that i had the vibe from you from you both that that question was was completely irrelevant because you have you have stated several times, you know, that the, a lot of this journey has been about adapting and overcoming the situation or the practicalities or the equipment or the problem or whatever it may be. And I think when you've finished a journey of this length with this depth and this range of, of uh, impact that you will have made on other people's lives and they've made on you, then there is no other what's next. It, 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 the, the, it's a case of, right, I'm, I, you, you are much more present. That's the overall f feeling I, bet I get from both of you, is that you're much more present in the world, in your world and in, in life now. And actually, if you don't do anything else again, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so uh, so it's interesting that Neon has, has, has made that statement. And, and as she was saying it, I was going, well, I can't see any point asking the question, really. However, one question did come to mind, which I haven't asked, which I should have done. And that is, how did you both feel when you actually finished that last sort of 15, 20 miles when you could see that you were going to reach your goal and you were getting to the, to the end there of the, of the river onto the, onto the Arctic? There must have been lots of things going through your mind. So uh, can we kick off with, with you, Lauren? Uh, yeah, I believe you actually have a photo of me sitting in the back of a canoe, and that's actually us out on the Arctic. Um, okay. It was a super, I kept saying it, I kept saying it was super surreal, because um, it was super windy the day that we actually popped out onto the, popped, uh, <laughs> the day that we actually came out, paddled out onto the Arctic, and so we were like, oh no, are we going to be able to get... Um, yeah, and so that's Bethany in the front, um, and she okay. is, that's looking out towards the Arctic. Like, we are on the Arctic Ocean at that point, just like looking around with our spray skirt on because we got all prepared um, to be kind of blown around and we weren't certain. Um, uh, yeah, and so that's like the, the edge of the Arctic Ocean behind me, the, the Northwest Territories. Um, land and so we that's the ocean like it was so flat it was so calm we were watching clouds blow across above us and just being like is something coming in we were concerned um, I kept saying how surreal it was just like with the the water melting into the the clouds they were almost the same color um, if that piece of land wasn't there you almost wouldn't be able to tell what was land and what was water what was the personal emotion that you were feeling at the time was it relief thank god it's all over or was it a sort of celebration or just that that sort of um that sort of meditative sort of knowledge that there you go you finished it that's fine yeah it was still like super surreal and super un like didn't seem like it was real until we got to tuk toyuk tuk and then we pulled up on on the shoreline and just I felt an immediate relief as soon as we as soon as we ended up on the shoreline of where we were trying to get, which does not always happen. Uh, <laughs> and from from there, we were welcomed into the community pretty immediately. And so our last day was just super calm, super chill. And then the next day, a storm rolled in and it rained all day. And we were just like, it was just that relief. So it's like, I feel like it was anticipating. I felt anticipatory coming up to it. And then the day that we paddled into Tuk Toyak Tuk um, was 
super surreal and super calm and just kind of this like feeling of like, wow, it's actually going to happen. Just kind of amazement. Um, and then the after effects were immediate relief of like, whoa, we did it. And then like celebration with the community and, um, with, with everybody all like 50 residents there. Um, we pretty much met uh, just about everybody. <laughs> and yeah, so that was, I don't know, it came in waves. And yourself, Fidget? Was it sort of uh, exactly the same? Some similar feelings? It was the same sense of awe and um I mean, you, you're the one that set the goal. You're the one that set the, that set the, the whole challenge up. So thank God it's all over, sort of more, I don't have to think anymore? Um, no, I would say that it was, how to, how to put it, um, it was a sense of presence of more than just myself. For our last night out on the water, you know, I stayed up until 1147 when the sun set and um, offered my ritual and my thanks, and then just to build story on to, to Lauren's sense of surrealism is she would say that across the water. And then as we rolled into Taktoyaktak, we just kind of chosen a random beach because somebody had told us a lady had actually, yeah, uh, we'd been told about that. There was a lady to look for in talk named granny and that granny would help us out. And we just so happened to paddle up onto this one little beach and um, all throughout her odyssey, a big part of our messaging has been share your story. And so as we pulled up onto this beach, this fellow comes out, John Little, and he's probably 67, around 67 years old. And he goes, uh, come up, stay with us, share your story. And then as we're sitting there talking, without any prompting or without our having used the word to that point, he just goes, that must just be such a surreal experience and so to come into a community who are already intuitively tapped into that space, I think because of the nature of where they live, was really special. We ended up spending a week there, you know, sewing slippers with the women taught us how to like sew slippers out of like seal skin and beaver. And I think if you go through the photos there, there's a picture of me receiving a sticker that says, I made it to tuck um, from the Hamlet office. And the woman that I'm standing with, we actually had a really great conversation with her and several of the other workers from, for the hamlet because it's been traditional that they hunt beluga whales. And it's only been recent that women have been free to enter the waters. Exactly that picture. So that is one of the four women this year who harpooned herself. They do it by hand, by arm strength, who harpooned a beluga whale and was able to feed her family and her community off of that. And so I think for me, the feeling at the end was this beautiful coming around of the story of maintaining the narrative of the progress of women's rights in these unusual fields whether it's us walking great distances or whether it's the Inuit women uh, sitting on the prow of a boat <laughs> hand harpooning a whale. Um, it was a very beautiful coming around and I'm still experiencing small, small tifts of that and just trying to revel in it and be present for it. Well, ladies, once again, thank you so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. I hope the questions haven't been too heavy for you. Uh, but it was, it was such a joy speaking to you last time that I wanted to replicate it in some way if I could this time. So thank you so much. And if anybody's listening or everybody who is listening and watching the video, of course, would you please just pop along to herodyssey.org and uh, make a small donation because I'm sure the, the guys would appreciate it and it would help them through the next stage, whatever that may be. So until next time, folks, uh, if there is a next time, then keep in touch and I'll speak to you then. All the best now. Bye. Well, my thanks very much go out to both Lauren and Bethany for taking the time to talk this afternoon. It's been absolutely fascinating to catch up with them after their experience. It's, you just can't get your head around it, can you? 18,221 miles. What an achievement. But at the same time, as you recognise... I hope it's become clear they've made a massive sacrifice in their life to do this for seven years 
And so it would be nice if you could visit their website, her-odyssey.org, and join the mailing list so that they can keep you informed of the various things that will be coming out of it. I understand that uh, Neon is making a few items which may, may appear in the shop, and at some stage... Uh, Fidget will be releasing a book which details, I'm sure, many, many experiences and interesting encounters with women, with people, indigenous people, with communities and some of their many, many experiences. So, folks, that's given you something to think about. It's one thing to pop out for a long walk this weekend, but it's another thing to commit to disappear off for a very, very long walk and take several years doing it. But some people do, and those are the people I do enjoy speaking to. So, until next time, folks, take care out there, no matter where you go in the world, and bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.